Hello and welcome to the UGA BCM podcast. This is a ministry of the UGA BCM on campus in Athens, Georgia. We're so excited that you've decided to tune in today. This episode is a bit different today. Last night at Gathering, we had the pleasure of having Abdu Murray speak at Tate Grand Hall. Abdu is an apologist, author, and converted Muslim. We got the pleasure of hearing about truth and why it matters in our students' lives. He also answered some questions from our students. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for that uh, warm introduction and that warm welcome as well. Um, I'm aware that there is a... um, I think there's a sporting event tonight of some kind uh, that people might be aware of and might need to go see at some point. So I'm going to try to respect that uh, and um, get through some comments in the beginning. I want to share with you a little bit of my story, then I want to get to the Q&A as much as possible. I hope you're an inquisitive bunch, uh, because otherwise it'll be a lot of awkward staring at each other for a while. But uh, hopefully what I'll say might stimulate some conversation and some, and some back and forth on some questions. That's actually my favorite part. Uh, because you and I get to talk. And um, what I want to say to you is, if that's the case, if we get to spend some time talking about this kind of thing, I want you to understand something. Whether you're a believer in Christ whose faith is founded very, very strongly, or you're someone whose faith is hanging by the thinnest of threads, or you're somebody who's coming here and you're thinking to yourself, what is this all about? Is this worth believing at all? Uh, what is this guy going to say to me or whatever it might be? I might disagree with him. I want you to know that this is a, uh, a place where I hope you, you'll see, receive from me is an interaction that's based on respect and uh, a, an intense care for what you are going through, what you're facing, what issues you, a friend of yours might be facing. So if you're a Christian and you have a, you have a question, Hopefully, you'll feel that you will have been answered. Not your question. I'm not interested in answering your question. I'm interested in answering you. But your question's important because that's how you get your answers. And if you're a non-Christian, I want you to know that I especially want you to feel respected here because oftentimes, and it's the case, that people think that Christians or Christian gatherings are the last place a skeptic would go for their hard and honest question because they fear that maybe that person won't have any answers or those answers will be shouted down because doubt has become a bit of a dirty word, as it were. You you shouldn't doubt at all. You shouldn't have questions. Those things should not enter into your head. And the reality is the scriptures welcome all those who sincerely seek and sincerely want something. So that's a fitting way to describe essentially my story and to set this up. That's where I was. I was somebody who had challenges to the Christian faith from my own background, but then I got challenged back. And it was because there were people who actually cared about my well-being, not just winning an argument, not just showing them me how much they knew or how much stuff they could jam into one conversation, but actually cared about me as a person that led me down this nine-year search uh, for, for the truth, believing in my heart now that I've come to this some 20-something years ago that this is worth not only pursuing as an intellectual thing, but it's also worth embracing as an existential reality in your life. It's not just true, it's relevant, but more than that, I would submit to you, and hopefully I'll sustain this for you tonight, is that the gospel isn't just true, it isn't just relevant, but it's truly relevant. It's all three of those things put together because it matters. 
and you're in my life. So just to set up the, 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 the context of my own journey of faith, my intellectual and spiritual journey of faith, um, I'll tell you, I'll start with a lawyer joke. I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I can tell a lawyer joke. Um, and it's, it's okay if you laugh, you won't offend me. Um, in fact, lawyers are the last people you, anyone cares about offending anymore. You can offend lawyers all you want, and no one seems to care uh, because, well, lawyers can be pretty offensive. Um, so there's a story of this guy, right? When he's the guy you think of, when you think of a lawyer joke, you think of this kind of a guy. He's the kind of guy who's, he, he's crafty, he's smart, but he uses every bended rule, and he'll break the rules a couple of times here and there to win his cases, you know, and he's really good at this. And so he shreds the truth every so often, just enough to win his cases, and he gets a huge palatial estate to live on with lots of wooded areas, and there's streams going through his yard and all this stuff. Well, one day he decides he's going to enjoy the fruits of his labors, and he's going to walk through this, um, this palatial estate, this wonderful area he's got. And it's a fall day, you know, so the leaves are falling, the streams are streaming, the squirrels are being squirrely, you know, all these kind of things. And he's walking, and he comes across something in his yard. In his yard, it's probably a bad word, and on, on his estate, it's a bear. And the bear looks at him, and it strips its teeth, and it snarls, and he's terrified. He knows what this means. So he bolts back to the house as fast as he possibly can, and he's running, and he's running, and he's running, and the bear is faster than he is, so the bear catches up to him, and it knocks him over, and as it has him pinned on the ground, it raises its huge paw to swipe at him, and he says, oh my God, and the bear stops. And suddenly, like, the leaves stop falling mid-fall, and the stream stops streaming mid-stream, and the squirrel stops squirreling mid-squirrel. Um, and a light comes from, from the heavens, and this booming voice says to him, you have betrayed the truth your whole life, and you have used lies for your own gain and sacrificed the well-being of others for yourself. Why should I save you? Now, he's a good lawyer, so he knows how to find a loophole. So he says, it would be hypocritical if I became a Christian right now, but could you make the bear a Christian? So, voice says, very well, and the light goes back up, and the leaves start to fall, and the streams begin to stream, and the squirrels get squirrely, and the bear puts his paws together and says, thank you, Father, for this food I'm going to receive. <laughs> um, the point of that joke is two things. First, you can't outlawyer God. If you think you're going to be more clever than he is, you're not going to be. I tried that for a lot of years, and you're going to hear that. Second thing is this is that truth, when it confronts you, can be painful. But I will tell you this, ultimately, it's liberating. And that's true for everybody in this room, by the way. I don't care what path you're on right now or what path you've been on. At some point, truth bumps into us. Uh, a therapist friend of mine said that pain is what reality feels like when it hits you. This is just the way life is. But spiritual truth and worldview issues are really important. If I say one thing in the course of my short comments before we get into the Q&A that you, you remember, I hope it's this. I hope you remember this, that the pursuit of truth is something all of us nobly try to say we want to do and we want to believe that we're pursuers of truth and we'll go wherever the evidence leads and we want to know what the truth actually is until it starts to get painful, until it sort of becomes uncomfortable. And there's nothing more uncomfortable in this world I think emotionally, other than what we just went through with the death of a loved one, then your worldview being changed. Because a worldview is a conviction about how you see the world. 
And when that's the case, you know, you have an opinion and you hold it with an open hand. An opinion is something you're okay with changing. This is my opinion, and until someone gives me sufficient reason to change my opinion, I'm going to hold on to it, but with an open hand. You, you walk around like this with an, open, with, a, with, a, with, a, with an opinion. But a conviction is something you hold with a closed fist. And I don't mean like a defiant fist. I mean you hold it dear and you clutch it like you would a loved one. Now, have you ever tried to pry someone's fist open when they're not willing? It's very difficult to do. You both end up hurting each other at some point. That's what changing your worldview can be like. And so I went through this journey where I, where I was saying I was willing to change my worldview if the evidence led there, but the reality was it was very, very difficult because changing who you are in terms of your religious identity, especially from some, of somebody with a Middle Eastern or an Eastern heritage, changing your, your religious identity is changing everything about you. A friend of mine once put it this way, that if you were to draw a square and put a dot in the middle of that square, in the West, the square is you, your personal identity, and the dot is religious identity. It's a very small part of who we are. If you go to the East and the Middle East, it's exactly the opposite, that the dot is you, but the square that surrounds you is religious identity. It forms everything about you. So when you change your religious affiliation, you change you, you change your relationships with your family, you change your relationships with your community, everything changes. But by the way, don't look any further than our own Western culture now. We are now engaged in what they call it the cancel culture, but basically, essentially, it's Eastern honor and shame culture where your identity is everything, and if you change that identity in some way, you're going to be considered to have betrayed somebody. And so it becomes very, very difficult. This is one of the reasons why I think the Bible is what Leslie Newbigin called our eternal contemporary. It's always relevant all the time because it speaks to this culture where religious identity was really important. And we think that it's this backwards book that has to do with you know, dusty old things written by dusty old people in a dusty old time and has no relevance to our lives today. When the reality is, if you look at the way things happen now just on social media and other places, is that if you happen to say the wrong thing or you happen to believe the wrong thing or you happen to change your mind, your former tribe will turn on you. It's an honor and shame culture. That's a Middle Eastern and Eastern thing. It's now been imported into the West, but only digitally. Thank you very much. You have us to thank for that. My people imported that here. But the Bible speaks about it, which means that it's ironic that a document that is considered outdated is so current to our current situation. So, I was raised as what's called a Shia Muslim. There's two, there's a lot of different denominations of Islam. There's a lot of different sects. The, there's the Sunnis, which are the majority. There's the Shia, which is a minority, but it's the largest minority. It's uh, between, depending on who you ask, it's between 15 to 25 percent of Muslims around the world would identify as Shia. You hear the word Shiite sometimes uh, in the news. Then there's other denominations as well, or other sects of Islam as well, but largely the Shia and the Sunni believe many of the same things. There are some slight differences, but largely on the fundamentals, they're the same. Um, well, I was proud of being a Muslim, and I wanted people to believe Islam. Now, I grew up in an area, I grew up in, in, in Michigan, which is a lot, a very heavy Muslim population in that area. In fact, one of the most concentrated uh, uh, areas of Muslims in the world outside of the Middle East is in the area I grew up in. Uh, but then we ended up moving to a suburb, and at the time, that suburb wasn't very religiously diverse. Uh, we were sort of this uh, 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 exotica that was in 
the suburb I grew up in. Uh, we were sort of, I put it this way, we were sort of the dollop of olive oil in the pot of rice, as it were. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of color. And now there's tons of it, which is great. It's great for the community aspects. It's also great for the restaurant choices. Um, uh, <clears throat> but then we were actually, like I said, we were exotic. And so people would ask me, hey, what do you Muslims believe? Like they'd say Muslim. Now people don't say that anymore because the media has taught them how to say it right. But that's what they used to, day, they used to do and say. Well, I would use that as an opportunity to talk about what I believed. But I had this crazy belief, you know. I had this crazy belief that people should believe true things and not false things. And you should try to believe as many true things as you possibly can and reject as many false things as you possibly can. And I did not want to believe in this idea of that's true for you, but not for me. This sort of relativistic idea. That was just, I wasn't having any of that. Because if it's true, it's just true. So I would engage with Christians. Now, Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit, you see. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in this area where I'm a child of the, of the 80s. Now, I was born in the 70s, but I remember the 80s because um, <clears throat> I got old enough to remember the 80s. And in the 80s, it was still fashionable, 80s and 90s, it was still fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you didn't really mean it. What you meant was, if you were, if you, were uh, if you said, oh, I'm a Christian, oftentimes what you meant was, I'm sort of religious, and I'm not an atheist, and I'm not Jewish. Um, that's sort of what you meant. Um, so I, but I thought people took it seriously. When they said they were a Christian, I'm like, I think you mean it, because Muslims mean it. If they say they're a Muslim, they would typically mean it. So I would ask Christians, why are you a Christian? Now, I was an equal opportunity faith knocker outer of her. It wasn't just Christians I was after, but they happened to be numerous, uh, as it were. I would talk to uh, atheists and, and Buddhists and, and Hindus. There weren't a lot, but there were a couple here and there. But Christians were low-hanging fruit, you know. So I would talk with them, and I'd ask this question, why are you a Christian? And oftentimes the answer was something like this. Uh, um, we go to the... Uh, Presbyterian church, I'm pretty sure, on Easter and Christmas. So I'm a Presbyterian? And I'm like, that sounded like a question, not an answer. Are you sure you actually know? And the answer was usually no. So I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a second. You tell, are you telling me that you trust the eternal destiny of your soul to a worldview somebody else thought through? Have you thought through it at all for yourself? And the answer was typically it's religion. You don't think that stuff through. I'm like, well, you do, and I have, and here's 15 reasons why you're wrong. Um, and I was good at it. The Bible's been changed. You can't trust the Bible. Uh, the, the idea that God could be a triune being, that there's one God in three persons, this makes no sense, and Christians are really just confused tritheists. You think you're monotheists, you believe in one God, but it really sounds like to me like you believe in three gods, because if God the Father is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God, and God the Son is God, sounds a lot like three gods to me, how does it not sound like that to you? No response on that one. And then I'd say something like this. It's like, you guys say that God is great. You know, I hear Christians saying this all the time. And of course, Muslims believe that. You've heard the phrase, right? Allahu Akbar. Have you heard this phrase? Now, normally when you hear it, it's usually in the media. This is unfortunate because most Muslims say that phrase. They don't mean it in any way, shape, or form with violence. They say Allahu Akbar. It means God is greater. They say, they say it as a prayer and a praise oftentimes when they get good or bad news they say, Allahu Akbar, God is greater than the bad news I just heard. Or Allahu Akbar, God is so great. Look at the many blessings he showers us with. So God's greatness, in fact, that phrase is so important to Muslims that the, this, it's got a name to it. It's called takbir, that Muslims believe so heavily in God's greatness 
that it's got a name to the phrase itself. And so this was the central idea that I operated with, is that if there is a God, he has to be the greatest possible being. And Christians were talking about a being who was tri tripartite, like he was like in three parts, and if God the Father needs help from God the Son then, and God the Holy Spirit, then how can God the Father be God? Because if he needs help, he, doesn't, he shouldn't be great. And my goodness, you say this God is great, but this God comes down and gets trapped in a body that sweats and, and bleeds and needs to eat and uh, you know, falls asleep and eventually dies. And not only dies, but dies at the hands of the very sinners he created. And you're saying this God is great? What are you, kidding? And so all these things I would tell my Christian friends, and a lot of them had no answers. But there were a couple of annoying Christians who knew what they were talking about. And I found those people to be terribly annoying. Here's why. Not because they were jerks. There were, well, there was one or two, but not, most of them were. Um, I found it to be annoying because I'm a debater at heart. I don't like to argue. I don't like to quarrel. Let me put it this way. I don't like to quarrel, but I do like to argue. And what I mean by that is this. An argument is simply, a good argument is not full of heat. It's full of light. So a solid argument is an argument that is basically a set of premises that if logically valid or true, will ultimately lead to a conclusion. Whether it's deductive or inductive or abductive, whatever it might be, it's just an argument, it's just a way to express a truth claim convincingly. A quarrel is just getting upset at people. I don't like to quarrel, but I like to argue, I like to debate, and these Christians were pretty good at it. And I'm also very competitive, so I'd like you to, to, to lose, thank you very much, if you just rolled over and died, it'd be fine with me. But they wouldn't. They knew what they were talking about. They answered my objections and offered some objections of their own. So I began to study Christianity a little more in depth because they were sort of the hardest nuts to crack. Um, uh, so I began to study this kind of thing, and um, two guys came to the door of my apartment complex at the University of Michigan. Now, if you know anything about University of Michigan, it's, um, it's like University of California, Berkeley, in terms of its political affiliation. It's just colder. Um, so it's not exactly, you know, warm and fuzzy towards a conservative Christian, especially theologically or politically viewpoint. But these two guys, these two Baptist guys, were going door to door at the apartment complexes at the University of Michigan wanting to talk about Jesus. So they came, and they were getting a lot of rejection. No, get out of here, bigot, whatever, and then slam the door, slam the door, slam the door. They came to my door, and I opened the door, and I was like, you guys deliver? This is great. Like it's spiritual DoorDash before DoorDash was a thing. Um, and I remember these two guys, by the way, Dave and Pete. I remember them uh, dearly. Pete was an older guy, stone bald, pencil thin. Dave was a short, squat guy, hair coming out of everywhere. He had like a cop stash and all, all kind of stuff, you know. I called them my walking number 10. That's what they looked like to me. Um, I didn't tell them that, by the way. Um, but I, I made Dave and Pete extremely uncomfortable for hours at a time. And they kept coming back. Like every Thursday, they'd come back to our apartment. If I didn't have exams or something else to do, they'd say, hey, can we come over? And they would. They'd come over. And oftentimes, they would ask, give me an answer to my question. Oftentimes, other times, they would not give me an answer, but they gave me the best response they could possibly give in short of an answer was, I don't know. Good question. I'll get back to you. And then they did. They researched it and got back to me. Well, I grew to love these two guys. 
because they wanted my best interest. They had my salvation in mind. Not to just go back to the church and say, I got one. They didn't care about that. They cared about me. And I cared about them. I wanted them to go to God's paradise. So we had this back and forth. And I wanted to find something in the Bible. I wanted to find a fundamental contradiction where Jesus says, you know, X in Luke's gospel, but not X in Matthew's gospel. Or the gospel of Matthew says, he did this. And then somewhere else it says, he didn't do that. And there's a contradiction somewhere. So I was walking down the street one day, and I happened, to, happened upon some Gideons. You know who Gideons are? These are the guys who leave the Bibles in the, in the, in the drawers in um, hotels. They do a lot more than that, by the way. But that's how they're famous. Well, they were handing out Bibles on a street corner in Ann Arbor. So I grabbed a Bible, tried to convert the guy to Islam, but it didn't work. But I got, got a little Bible. And um, I went back to my apartment. Um, have any of you lived in a quote-unquote furnished apartment here on campus? You're aware of what furnished, it's a euphemism for ratty chair with some cloth over it, and there might be a mouse family living inside. That's kind of how my chair was. Um, so I'm sitting on this chair um, uh, for the audio recording. I did that in air quotes. Um, uh, <clears throat> and I've got this little Bible I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm reading through. And I want to find a contradiction, but then I find something else. What I find is John the Baptist's words in Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following. John the Baptist is telling people, he says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, meaning God's judgment for their sins? Who told you to flee? Who told you to come here to be baptized? And then he says something remarkable. He says, do not even begin to think to yourself you have Abraham as your father, as if that would save them, their heritage. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. Your DNA and your heritage is not important. Truth trumps tradition. Now, why that bothered me so much, friends, is because that's what I was saying. I'd ask a Christian, why are you a Christian? They'd say tradition. I'd say not good enough. And I was right. And John the Baptist was agreeing with me. Why this is annoying is because I, as a Muslim, Muslims are, are taught to believe that the Bible was once, or at least part, parts of the Bible, because the Quran, the Holy Book of the Muslims, specifically names parts of the Bible. The Taurat, the five books of Moses, the Zabur, the Psalms of David, and the Injil, the Gospel of Jesus. And it references these things specifically in the text of the Quran. So Muslims believe that there was revelation of these books by God through certain people, and that those things became lost in some sense or corrupted and needed to be brought back, like a course correction, brought back. That's what the Quran is all about. It brings us the perfect revelation so that we can come back to true monotheism. So you get the sequence of events, right? The sequence is Bible revealed, Bible corrupted, Quran revealed. We come back to true monotheism. That's what my belief actually was. So you'll understand when I tell you that Luke's gospel, recording John the Baptist's words, preserved for 2,000 years for me to hear a challenge because in all the time I had asked a Christian, why are you a Christian? I put them on their heels so much and so defensively that they never had a chance to ask me, well, why are you a Muslim? Now, I gave them all my reasons, but they never had a chance to ask me. I just assumed they wanted to know, so I told them all my evidences. But had someone sincerely asked me, I think deep down the conviction I received that day was that I was a Muslim because I was supposed to be. Tradition. In case you're not aware of it, that's called hypocrisy. 
I was telling Christians that's a bad reason to be something, and the fundamental reason I was, I had all my evidences and all that, but the fundamental reason I was was because I was raised that way. So I decided that very day, and I'm going to cut the, short, the story a little short so we can get to some Q&A. I decided that day to put them all to the test. I thought, okay, this is a good challenge for me. If, if Islam is true, it will stand up to the test. It will win. And I was fully confident it was going to win. But if Christianity is true, I want to know it. I want to be as objective as I possibly can. I don't want to believe something just based on tradition. I want to believe it because it's true. So that began the journey. That began a years-long journey into the philosophical, historical, scientific, and existential underpinnings and theological and all that stuff of the major religions and views, whether it was Islam and Christianity or atheism or Hinduism or Buddhism, whatever it was. I mean, Islam and Christianity started to, started to like rise as the top contenders. So I was studying basically every other ism and schism you could think of. Um, I wanted to know what was true. Along the way, a couple of things happened. One is that I began to see that there is tremendous, there are wonderful reasons to believe that the Bible we have now is what they wrote back then. In large form, in huge, a huge percentage, of what we have in our hands when you open your Bible is a translation based on great manuscript evidence of the original. We don't have the originals. We just don't have. We don't have actual Mark sitting around somewhere or actual Luke or whatever sitting around somewhere. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. But those copies are old and they're early and they largely agree with each other and what they don't agree in terms of the copying errors and that kind of thing that have happened, there's a lot of ways you can actually use those things to line them up to where you can have wonderful agreement on these things. I mean, the, the fact that there are differences in some of the manuscripts is actually a good thing. And we can, we can talk about that during Q&A if you want. I don't want to necessarily belabor the point here. But the evidence was really getting there. Because remember what I said. I remember something. That the, 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 I was taught as a Muslim that the Bible was changed and the Quran came to bring us back to true monotheism. So if the Bible was revealed then changed, that's one thing, but then the evidence shows that the Bible was never really changed. And that's a problem. In fact, it's such a problem because, as I was reading the Quran, the book of the Muslims, you come to a fifth chapter in the Quran. It's called Al-Ma'idah, which refers to what's called the table spread. It refers to basically a last supper of Jesus and his disciples. And in the, the, the Quran, in chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, there's some context there for what was revealed to Christians in terms of the, the book, the gospel. And it says this in Arabic. It says, yahkum, that's a present tense plural imperative. It's a present tense direction. It says, yahkum ahlil injil. It basically says, you people of the gospel, meaning Christians, you are to judge, present tense, right now, at the time the Quran was being revealed, you are to judge by what God has revealed in the gospel. And then it says, those who don't judge by what God has revealed are among the evildoers, or the rebellious ones, depending on your English translation of the Quran. Did you get it? Did you see this? Remember what I said, the sequence? Bible revealed, Bible corrupted, Quran revealed. So the corruption had to come before the Quran, right? If that's the case, then why is the Quran referring to the Bible, the gospel, as a book that is so important that if Christians don't judge by it in the present tense 
at the time of the Quran's revelation that they will be called evildoers. How could they do that if the book had been corrupted? It would make no sense to give that command if the book had been corrupted. Then a few, a few verses later in the same chapter, in verse 68 of the same chapter, uh, it says, Ya ahl al-kitab, which means, O oh, people of the book, meaning Christians and Jews, lestum ala shay'an, hatta yuqimu, you stand upon nothing or you have no foundation. Hatta yuqimu is again a present tense imperative verb, plural, until you all observe right now by what, what, what God has revealed um, in the Torah, it names the Torah, and the Gospels, and all the revelations that have come to you from your Lord. Well, how could Christians and Jews possibly do that if the Bible had been corrupted and changed to the point where it couldn't be trusted anymore? So you see the problem, right? The Quran refers to the Bible in numerous, this, those aren't the only two places, there's numerous places uh, where the Quran refers to the Bible in very glowing terms. But I had been taught that the Quran came to fix all the problems with the Bible. You can't have it both ways. And so that's what Al Gore might call an inconvenient truth, you know. Um, I have to deal with that. So over the course of some years, I began to deal with it and try to find out, well, maybe the Bible was changed, but after the Quran. And so the fact that the Bible and the Quran contradict each other in important ways shouldn't bother me because maybe the Quran was preserved and the Bible was changed later and all that. But that doesn't work either. The evidence just isn't there. But friends, let me just fast forward to the end because I want to get there. We can interact on some of the, some of the material, um, and it doesn't have to be specifically to Islam, by the way. It can be on any search for the truth whatsoever, on any issue you want. No questions off limits, friends, okay? My point in telling my story is about what it costs to search for the truth and how difficult it often can be. So I, for years, tried to syncretize the Bible and the Quran once the evidence was clear that the Bible had not been changed over time when the evidence became more and more abundant to me that Jesus actually died on a cross as a matter of history and then rose from the dead as a matter of actual history, not just hope, but actual history, the fundamental miracles of the Christian faith, the one we're hoping to celebrate this coming Sunday, the one miracle without which there is no Christianity. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no reason to be a Christian. Zero. You might as well admit. Paul says that. He says if he didn't rise, chuck it. It means nothing. Do something else. So I've been becoming more and more convinced of this fact. But I remember nine years into the search, nine years, almost a decade, I remember realizing something. Remember what I told you? God is greater. Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being. Follow me on this, okay? Because this is the, sort of the logical progression of how this ended up being. Not only intellectually defensible from the Christian perspective, but it mattered here in my heart. If God is the greatest possible being, then he would naturally express the greatest possible ethic he would be the highest ethical being there could be, right? If he was semi-ethical, he wouldn't be great. And Muslims and Christians both agree God is maximally great. He cannot be not the greatest being. So if he's the greatest possible being, he would express the greatest possible ethic. What is the greatest possible ethic? It's love. 
all other things flow from love. And when we have a sincere, think about the relationships in your life. Think about all the things in your life uh, that you have. You have fair people in your life. You have just people in your life. But the people to whom you entrust your life are those who love you and you love back. It's the foundation of relationality is that love. It's the foundation of trust. Justice is an overflow oftentimes of love either towards one person or towards humanity, generally speaking. So the greatest ethic is love. If God is the greatest possible being, then he would express love. But he wouldn't just do it as well as we do or half-baked. God, if he's the greatest being, would express the greatest ethic in the greatest way. That's just logically so. If he doesn't do it, he's no longer great. What is the greatest possible way to express love? I mean, think about the relationships in your life. If you have a significant other of some kind and you surprise them with a gift, you show up at work unexpectedly and you got something for them, you say something nice to them, you do uh, whatever the 2020's version of a mixtape is. Um, they do all these wonderful things, right? But you notice something about that? There's a little bit of selfishness in your selflessness because you want her to think you're Romeo and you want him to think you're Juliet, although that story ends badly, so don't go too far. Um, <laughs> but there's a certain bit of selfishness in our selflessness. But you, I hope you have these kinds of relationships. You have a relationship, brother or sister, loved one, significant other or whatever it is, where you know that they will do something that benefits you and hurts them. They will sacrifice for you. As a parent, I can tell you that is almost a instinctual thing. The greatest love you and I and any being can possibly express is a love that is self-sacrificial. If you and I can do it, ought not the creator of the entire universe, the highest possible being, be able to do that? And if he can't, then there's something going on there. So if, he's God, if God is the greatest possible being, he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. And I remember where I was, where a nine-year journey had finally led me to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Everything I've said, and this is something I think is just majestic about the Bible, only the Lord of glory, the Lord of language, the one who created the variability for human beings to, to, to communicate, can boil everything I, did, I said down to one sentence. That's the efficiency with which he speaks. God demonstrated his love, his greatest possible love, in that while we were sinners, those who hate God, Christ died for us. This is important because that is not only the greatest possible being expressing self-sacrifice as an expression of love, but when you and I sacrifice, we do it for those who love us back. Very rarely will we do it for a stranger, and we tend not to do it for, for an enemy. When they killed Osama bin Laden, the streets were flooded with celebrants, people who were cheering his death. It did not occur to any of us to be sad and to think, boy, I wish I could give my life in exchange for his so he could hear the gospel. Our love, as self-sacrificial as it is, has limits. We don't love our enemies very well. But God demonstrates his love, his perfect love, his boundless love, his greatest possible love, in that while we were sinners, 
God-haters. Christ died for us. The greatest possible being, pursuing the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. When I realized that, that the great, the Allahu Akbar, the God who was greater, was the one I was looking for my whole life, but I finally found him here at the cross and the empty tomb, well, that's when God made me a son of Abraham out of a stone. But it took nine years. It did not take nine years, friends, because the answers were hard to find. It took nine years because the answers are hard to embrace. There's a consequence to these things. And oftentimes, it can be the reason why we can nod our heads politely in a conversation and even begin to agree with someone who's presenting a gospel, uh, a, a, a gospel credibly. And we're thinking, how do I get out of here? How do I get out of here? Or we're just thinking of the consequences of what those things are. I can assure you of this. Every loss, every sacrifice, everything I've ever had to face pales in comparison to the sacrifices made for me so that I could be saved. How dare I equate those two things together? Does that minimize the pain of changing your worldview? No. But does it put it into a proper perspective? Yes, because the God who's out there would never let you live in your sin. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I'll stop talking. We can do some questions. He said, but the great thing to remember is this, that while our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is therefore quite relentless in its pursuit of us, at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. So whatever it might cost you, or a friend, or someone you know, to come to a knowledge that Jesus might be who he said he was, what he said he did cost him infinitely more and he is always worth it every time. So friends, that's my story. Let's have some questions. So let's hear the uh, first question on anything. Don't worry about it. No questions off limits. It's all safe. The, um, the first question is really hard usually to start with, so we'll just go with the second question. All right. Oh, a hidden. Hello. You're on. I can hear you. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, I am uh, going to the Middle East on a mission trip in Good six weeks. What's the best way that you recommend me, like, prepare for that? What's your name? Uh, Dan. Dan? <laughs> Hi, Dan. Um, well, I'm glad you're going. Fantastic. Um, I don't necessarily ask you which country. That might be a thing that you've got to keep quiet. Um, okay, a couple of things. I'm going to say a very sort of cliche, almost moan and a groan thing when I say this, and you probably already know what I'm going to say, is make sure you pray a lot. You know, super cheesy, like, oh, how predictable, like as if you haven't done it yet. But we've got to remind ourselves of this kind of thing because we can often, here's why I say that, Dan, is because we can often bog ourselves down so much in academic or cultural studies or making sure we get all our I's dotted and our T's crossed and our, you know, our um, uh, various whatever's done. I, I, can't, I ran out of analogies. Um, uh, that we somehow lose focus of what the whole thing is about. Um, so... Gird yourself in prayer and in daily devotions 
as much as possible, even if, if, if not more than ever, on this kind of a thing. Second thing is, whatever culture you're going to, first of all, don't, don't assume that Middle Eastern culture is a thing um, in and of itself. It is a thing, but it's, it's various. It's varied, it's diverse. You have very different, if you go to Yemen, it's not the same thing as going to Lebanon. It's not the same thing as going to sort of Levant, Levantine, you know, whether it's Lebanon or Jordan or Syria or, you know, the West Bank and Palestine. It's not the same thing. Those are different cultures. Arabia, the actual Hejaz itself, the actual peninsula, it's very different in many respects than other parts. If you go to like Dubai, for example, you'll come to realize that only like 12% of all of Dubai are people from the Emirates. It's actually all these expats from the Philippines and, and South Africa and Australia and, and you name it, India. And you're like, wow, where are all the Arabs at? Because um, there's not a lot of them. So you have to be prepared. For, so do your cultural studies, but undergird it in prayer and in devotion time. Um, what I would do is spend as much time as you can learning about the worldview you're going to talk to, um, but not at the expense of shoring yourself up in your own. Because one thing I want you to notice, okay, is that in my own conversion, and this is not a, a, a prescription for everybody's conversion, in my own conversion, I didn't leave Islam because it was false. I embraced the gospel because that was true. And there's a distinction there. Now, I'm not saying that polemics, are you familiar with polemics, the word polemics? Polemics is basically the art of, um, of arguing against a position. Um, apologetics is the art of arguing in favor of a position or defending a position. Um, I came to faith largely because of Christian apologetics, not because of anti-Islamic polemics. I know people who have become, who, who, who left Islam because they were told that Islam is not true and here's why and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but ultimately, people don't become Christians because their other worldview was false. They become Christians because they embrace the gospel. So what I'm saying is, is that a secondary concern for you as a Christian is to know, it's not that important, it's, just, it's not the primary one, is to know the worldview you're going to go speak to. Also, don't make assumptions about who you're speaking to, okay? Because oftentimes, someone wears a label around their neck, and I know this sort of contradicts what I said earlier, but it's not a contradiction, it's a bit, bit of a paradox. Some folks can wear a label around their neck, and it says Muslim. You know, it's figurative. I mean, I'm sure some do wear a label on their neck that say that, but I, I doubt it. Um, but um, they'll say that, okay? Others might say Christian or agnostic or skeptic or whatever it is. Um, be careful, because oftentimes those are just cultural expressions of something. They're not the real thing behind the person. Here is a, sto a story for you. So a friend of mine invited me to a Muslim's house to go and sp speak about the resurrection of Jesus. Why do I believe in the resurrection? Because there's a huge part of me coming to faith was the evidence for the resurrection. So he invited me to this guy's house, and... Um, uh, he said, I've been talking to this guy, and, you know, he's really, he's very, very, you know, inquisitive. He wants to ask questions. He's a good guy. You'll like talking to him. Okay, great. So, I don't know him, but let's go. We'll go to this house. We go to his house. He's not home yet from work. But his wife answers the door. His wife and her sister. And she's muhajabi. She wears the hijab. And so does her sister. And so they answer the door. They're very polite. And they say, you know, my, my husband's not home yet. He'll be home. And, and then her, her sister said, oh, my husband will be home with him coming, coming back from work, and they'll be together, and you'll all be together here. Please enjoy some light refreshments, which is code in Arabic for a meal. Because, um, you know, if, by the way, that's another thing you should do is get a gym membership. Because if you're not already burning calories, 
Um, if you're not already burning a bunch of calories, you should, because when you are reaching out to Middle Easterners, food is just, it's a lot. Uh, it's inevitable. I mean, she literally had a tray that looked like it was covering a small child uh, of can uh, with, with, with like fruits and nuts and whatever, you know? So she puts this thing down, kabunk, you know, on the table, and she walks into the bedroom with her and her sister because they can't be alone with us in the room. So she goes there waiting for her husband to come home. Well, he comes home. He comes home from his job as a dealer at the casino. Now, if you know anything about Islam, you know that there's already an off picture there because gambling is haram or forbidden in Islam. And suborning gambling, helping other people gamble, is equally as haram. So this guy walks in, making a living, doing something, and helping other people do something that's sinful. So that already tells me something about this guy, in terms of his convictions. But he walks in, my friend tells me, you know, he wants to talk about this stuff and all that, so he sits down. We start talking about, you know, various things, and we get to the resurrection at some point. And so my friend sort of ham-handedly says, Abdu, what about the resurrection? You know, like, okay, now we have this weird conversation where I just jump into it, you know. So we start talking about it, and I get into the point, my first point, he says, oh, oh, stop, stop, stop. I'm like, oh, I, did I offend him? What did I do? He said, so let me ask you this question. He said, how can, how can you believe that God is all-knowing and good when he lets so many bad things happen to our people? He wasn't really a Muslim. He was agnostic. But he wore that label around his neck because it was culturally appropriate to do. So the good news is, is he felt comfortable enough to express a pretty serious doubt about God's existence, let alone Islam or Christianity, with me in the room. A tremendous flattery and honor, by the way, because that's not the kind of thing that, especially in the East, you do. Express your misgivings and doubts to a stranger. You just don't do that. But he did. So it told me a lot about this guy. And then maybe we're going about this the wrong way. So he had to pivot and shift. So I don't want you, Dan, to make assumptions about who you're going to meet just because they are in an Islamic country. Okay? Just don't make assumptions about that. In fact, one of the phenomena, and there are some, some mullahs and imams who are talking about the phenomenon of deconstruction happening within the Middle Eastern context where people are leaving Islam. They're not becoming Christians, although in some countries they are. There's a tremendous surge in certain countries like Iran and Egypt and other places where there's a surge of Christians, uh, new, new, uh, sort of newly, newly reborn people in Christian circles from Islamic backgrounds. But a lot of them are actually going to atheism, and here's the reason why. It's because they've been told their whole life that Christianity is dumb. It's nonsense. But now they've come to see, hey, maybe Islam isn't what I thought it was. And so now they feel like they have no option, so they become atheists. So a credible Christian witness is very important here. So prepare by understanding your worldview um, and being able to articulate your worldview primarily, not only in words, but in deeds, in deeds as well. And then, not a distant second, but secondarily, understand their worldview as well, depending on the country you're going to, and make no assumptions. That's a really important thing for you to do. I hope that's helpful, Dan. Another question, please. Okay. We're going to spread to the middle in a minute here. Uh, I just want to say thank you for coming today. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, my, my name's Max, and my question to you is, um, as UGA students, um, a lot, not a lot, a lot of us, excuse me, um, try to go around campus and do some evangelism. And um, sometimes, you know, people, a lot of times, you know, people will be shut off to us trying to talk to them. And as a former Muslim, um, you 
you said when, at the University of Michigan, you were kind of shut off as well. Mm -hmm. And then those two gentlemen came up to you um, progressively over and over again, kind of not challenged you, but showed the love of Jesus to you. Mm -hmm. um, my question to you is, um, if we're going to be, do, if, as UGA students, if we're going to try, be trying to spread the gospel like those two gentlemen did, how can we do it? How, if we're approaching individuals who um, are very shut off, kind of yeah. the way you were at the time, how do we like show that love that those two gentlemen did, did to you, but in like a shorter amount of time, so we can be as effective as possible? Even though if those of it, even though if those individuals, you know, are as sh shut off as you can be, like, what's your best advice to us as students to try to help? as many people as possible so we can save people's souls like your soul is saved? So, uh, great question. Max is your name? Uh, Max, great question. Um, so here's what I would say, okay? And this is gonna be sort of almost counter to the answers you want. But it's the answers you want, I believe me, it is. Um, <laughs> um, definitely the answer you need. I didn't become a Christian in college. Those guys came to me and I became a Christian years later. The lesson here is that I remember their names, what they looked like, what they said to me. And it took years before I became a believer. In fact, I gave my story on Focus on the Family. Are you guys familiar with Focus on the Family? I gave my story on Focus on the Family in 2020. This is 25 years after I met those guys, maybe even longer, maybe 29 years. And Pete sent me an email. He says, I think I'm the Pete. And he, sent, and he sent me a picture. I'm like, for heaven's sake, you're Pete. Um, you're right, Pete, you are you. Um, <laughs> sort of this ridiculous uh, counter-revelation going on here. Um, Pete and Dave never would have thought they were getting to me because I didn't want them to. What my, so my advice for you, Max, and anybody else for that matter is don't feel the need or feel the... the, the, the give in to the false statement that if they didn't, if you didn't close the deal on that person's couch or in the kitchen table or at the dining hall or whatever it is that you didn't get to somebody. Okay, your job is not to close the deal. That's the Holy Spirit's job. However, your job is to be faithful in the moment you're in and to show God's love in word and in deed. So visibility of Christian service Look, here's the reality, and this is the thing that if you're a believer in this room, this is the reality you have to face. And this is because of my generation, so sorry. This is, you're stuck with it. I wish you weren't. You are. Um, the percept, Christianity is quite a PR problem. You know, it's not, we're taking it on the chin lately. It's not like it's like, oh, good, Christians have showed up? Awesome. Like, people don't, they used to think that. And now they're not thinking that all the time. It's being equated with homophobia and other things of phobia. Um, and, uh, and racism and sexism. And it's being equated with these things as if it's that. That's why the, the book I wrote, More Than a White Man's Religion, that's why I wrote it because these are the issues of the day. These are the things that prevent, I think, a healthy engagement on what the Christian faith actually has to say. Christians have gotten in Christ's way, as it were, as if they could. Um, so we have to be visible. We have to be authentic. We have to be real even if we don't get a chance to sort of lay out the gospel, four spiritual laws, Romans Road, you know, you name your technique. Be visible, be transparent, be a light. Let your light shine before all men so that they might see your works and then, and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Um, so that's one. But two, as you share, if you share with questions, you're going to get very, a lot further. So here's an example of what I mean by that. Um, if you're talking to somebody and you're engaged in a conversation with somebody, either they're brand new to you or you have some modicum of a, of a relationship with them, and you ask them a question, and you ask them a question like, what are your plans after college? Or what are your plans after grad school? Or hopes and dreams? My, my wife wants to ask the guy a tremendous question, and it's a Miss America question. It's like the kind of question, it's like, oh, seriously, it's so cliche. She asked it at exactly the right time. Sometimes the best question isn't necessarily the best worded question, it's the most well-timed. Um, she asked this guy, who does a lot of great work all around the world, he's an atheist, a lot of great work all around the world, she asked him, hey, what inspires you to do what you do? You know, that's the kind of thing you'd ask a, a contestant of a contest, right? But she asked him, and he's like, oh, people, helping people. You know, it's magnanimous, you know, it's a very Miss America answer. Um, so uh, I'm a smart aleck, so I said, why? <laughs> um, now, at this point, we had actually had a, quite a good conversation, and we had a relationship brewing quite well. So I felt, I felt comfortable in that moment that I could take a risk with him. And so I said, why? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, what do you mean, why? I mean, helping people should be a self-evident thing you should want to do. What are you, some kind of moral cretin? I mean, he didn't say those words, but he's probably thinking those things, right? And I said, no, I'm serious. I'm actually asking why. Um, because I'm so glad you do this. But my big question for you is, you just got done telling me in our conversation that you basically believe we're biochemical machines that react to external stimuli. So if you're a biochemical machine, and I'm a biochemical machine, then how is it you're inspired to help me at all? Where does inspiration come from? How, does, how is your profession as a doctor, which I believe is noble, and I think you believe it too, when I tell you that the reason why you're the nobility of your profession is that you are helping someone else made in God's image, that ennobles your profession. What you've described as one robot helping another robot to function, that's sterile and cold. And I don't believe you believe that about your profession. Now my point is that you should have that conversation every single time you talk to somebody, but one question led to a real conversation. And it started, well, it led to two questions, like why and what do you mean and all these kind of things. So I think if you ask people questions, they, they, they don't close off as much. And here's the trick, though. You have to be interested in the actual answer, not in the ammunition the answer provides you. People see through that. So if you ask someone a question like, well, what do you hope happens later? Do you have hope for the future? Or are you even, I mean, hopefully you don't get involved in too many political conversations because those never end well. But, um, but if you have a conversation about eternal or, or ultimately important things, I think this can lead to a spiritual conversation because you're asking about them and what motivates them and what is the cry of their heart. And you're learning what they actually believe and what they care about. And so honestly, I think a great way to have a conversation is to say as little as possible and to ask as much as possible so that when you do say something, it's actually something the person cares about. So I don't, want to, don't, I don't want to tell you don't give them the gospel. Of course give them the gospel. But if you give somebody a gospel that is tailored, not compromised, but tailored to the actual 
hopes, desires, fears, and anxieties that a person actually has, then it becomes true and relevant and truly relevant. Does that help you at all, Dax? So as many questions as you can possibly get because you want to be interested in the person, not in the outcome. And the outcome will take care of itself. Thank you. We have a question in the yes. back. Um, hi. Hi. Yes. Um, I'm Grace Ann. Nice. Hi, Grace Ann. Grace, Grace Ann. Ann, yes. Grace Ann. Yeah. Um, so in our, especially right now where we're all at in life, um, especially in the South, most of us have probably grown up Christian, grown up learning the gospel. And so how should we approach a close friend um, who grew up in the church, was heavily involved with the church, um, but decides to turn away uh, from the faith because they feel more content and fulfilled um, with living a life apart from God. Yeah. Well, thanks, Grace Ann, for that. Um, you know what's interesting about that? Someone once asked me, what's the hardest question I've ever had to answer? And that's usually the hardest one. Um, not because it's intellectually difficult, but because the reality is um, people respond oftentimes. Ask anybody, this is a terrible analogy, so please forgive me, but ask anybody in marketing what you're trying to do is get them something, whether it's a message or a product or whatever, that fulfills an authentic, felt need. So you have an authentic, felt need for food. Someone says, I have food. You need it, you want it, you're not content without it, you should eat it. It's a pretty easy sell. But what if they say, I have all the food I could ever want, and it's this. And you realize, yeah, but it's, you know, shamrock shakes and Big Macs. It's all the food you could ever want, but it's not actually food. Um, and they're happy. But you know what's going to eventually happen. Is the arteries clogged, you know, whatever else happens when you eat that much partially hydrogenated vegetable oil. Um, and they'd heal over and die. Um, so, but it's hard to get someone to feel a need. What you're trying to show them is you have an actual legitimate need, but you don't feel it yet. Um, and in fact, maybe they felt dissatisfied with the full course meal, the nutritional meal, and now they go here. I mean, that's what we do all the time. We do this with, food, with actual food. By the way, you're going to find out if you listen to me talk very often that food is like my favorite topic. Other than the Trinity, food is my favorite topic, um, uh, which is probably self-evident. Um, uh, so I get a lot of analogies for that. But it's difficult because no amount of intellectual reasoning can get someone to feel something, usually. And here's what I mean by that. If someone is content, I want to find out the source of their contentment. Like, what is it that has made them content living a life different than a Christian life, okay? Because there's many reasons why they could, they, they, they could want that. There was a YouTube video, and I talk about this in my, in my latest book, but there was a YouTube video of these two uh, uh, young women who had left the faith. They, they, they left what they called born-again Christianity, as if that's like a denomination. Like, it's the first church of born-again Christianity over there. Um, I mean, whatever. Um, uh, but they talk about why they left. And so there's this one woman who's the host, and she's interviewing the other woman about why she left Christianity. And she's talking about the woman who left basically said what started the whole thing was the doctrine of sin, that she was a Sunday school teacher at her church, a very legalistic church, hyper-legalistic, by the way. And she said, essentially, that I had to teach this little girl in my Sunday school class, I had to teach these kids about sin. And I remember looking at this little seven-year-old girl and thinking, this little girl, cute as a button, innocent as the day is long, and I had to tell her, you're a horrible, detestable sinner who deserves hell. 
and I couldn't do it. I began to cry. And that started the landslide of, oh my goodness, this whole thing is mind control. And it, 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 all it does is make you feel bad about yourself so the people in power get to stay in power and tell you what you need, and it's a whole sales job. That's what she's saying, right? And then at the end of the video, towards the end, she says something along the lines like this. She says, life is so good after Christianity. And then the host is overjoyed. Oh, it's so good. It's so great. They go on and on about how great life is after Christianity. And then one says, now I can just shine. She says, oh, yes, you can. It's what a great word, shine. You can just shine. And I'm watching this video, and I remember thinking to myself, I thought about a lot of things. It's about an hour long. It's long. And I remember thinking to myself, here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy. Whenever you leave a transcendent belief, something religious, you don't replace it with nothing. You replace it with another god. The heart is a perpetual idol factory, John Calvin says. And sometimes the idol looks just like us. So I remember thinking when that young lady said, you can just shine. The reason she said that was because she was made to feel in a hyper-legalistic church dirty and awful. And she said something interesting. She said, Christianity is a strict set of rules based on the idea that you are a horrible sinner, deserving of hell, in need of salvation, and it only comes by the grace of God. But otherwise, you deserve hell. That's it. That's born-again Christianity. That's pain. That's what she said. Did you notice something? Notice this? She almost had it right. Christianity is a set of beliefs based on the doctrine that you are a sinner. True. That because of your sin, you don't get to go to heaven. You don't deserve heaven. True. That except for the grace of God, you won't go. True. That's it. False. False. What did she miss? The very first chapter of the Bible. You are made in God's image. That's why Christ came. Not because you are unloved, but because you are self-sacrificially loved. She forgot that part. The whole point of the shine. Where does the ability to shine come from? It comes from the light inside. It comes from the fact that you bear God's image. Because if we're just biochemical machines that bump into each other and fulfill whatever biochemical desires we all have, is there such a thing as free will? Does love actually exist? Or is it just whatever chemicals are firing in the brain based on the infatuation you happen to have? Like the fact that you love a certain song. You ever have this happen where you love a certain song and you can't stop playing that song and it makes you cry every time you listen to it until Tuesday and now it's old? If that's all we are, then nothing is actually transcendent. And so David Foster Wallace said this in his address. Not a Christian, by the way. I don't know if he's even a theist. He said there's no such thing as atheists. Everyone believes in something. The problem is if you don't believe in something transcendent, it will perpetually disappoint you. If you believe in your own, if your own, in your own beauty, every wrinkle will be one more cut that, that kills you slowly before they finally plant you. If you believe in your own intelligence, every year that goes by after the decline of your mental faculties is one more instance of a slow death that results 
in the deterioration of your own God, which is you. If you believe in money, you'll find out something. You can't buy one more minute with it when the time is up. If you believe in power, you become weaker and weaker and weaker as you get older, and that's just going to be a problem as well. And so you die a million little deaths. But the Christian who believes that this death in this life is but a gateway to that which is to come, secured by one who conquered death, will never fear that, will never die those thousand little deaths, those million little deaths, because the joy that is set before them transcends that stuff. So perfect contentment right now is something you might feel at the moment. It's not actually contentment, it's just happiness. And happiness is based on consequences and circumstances. Joy is based on transcendence no matter your circumstances. And so what I would say is that you have two assumptions when someone says, I'm content without religion. You might be happy with it for the moment. I would challenge your friend to read a book, short little e-book, I think it's free actually, by an atheist named Barney Adler. Barney Adler, the book's entitled Save Me, An Open Letter to the Christian Church. And basically he complains that the church has made the gospel so boring and he used to love it. And at the end of it, this is what he says. He says, I've come to realize something, that this life is cruel and harsh and painful and it does not wait for anybody and it has pity on no one. There is no God to turn to, although I desperately want there to be one. There is no Christ to comfort me, although I desperately need there to be one. This world has no care for anybody and it is relentless and cruel. Someone save me, God help me. There's a time when happiness goes away. But joy can be enduring, not based on circumstances, not based on how well your skin bounces back when you pinch it, now, not how well you do on your exams or how great your, your career happens to be. Joy is fundamentally sustaining, even in tough times. C.S. Lewis, oh, so that, that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Um, you make an assumption. When you have a contentment, you make an assumption. And the assumption is that the things you have that make you content didn't come from God. You know, the Bible's very interesting because it doesn't say, those who believe in me are blessed, and that's the only ones. It says, specifically, God causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike. That reign is a blessing. We're talking about people who lived in some pretty harsh conditions. So God, call, it's called common grace. People get blessings all the time who don't believe in God because it's a way to point people, because first, God loves them, and second, he wants them to know him. The ultimate point in life is not to have stuff. It's not to be happy. That actually, by the way, I don't know if you know that. The ultimate point in life is not to be happy. The ultimate point in life is to be joyous because you have a relationship with the one who created you. So whatever it takes in this life to point us to that ultimate joy is what God's willing to do. So we make an assumption that the life you have, the education you have, the stuff you have, the, the career you're pursuing, the beauty you might be enjoying, the friendships you might, uh, be, um, uh, uh, you might have, that all these things somehow are manufactured by you or by chance. That's an assumption. That's an unsafe assumption. And if it is true that it comes from a God, how ungrateful could it possibly be to discount that? So that's number two. But number three goes back to C.S. Lewis when he said this. We go about fooling around, looking for money and power and sex, and we think that that's life. But we are very much like children sitting in a gutter eating mud pies, thinking 
that this is really happiness when we don't know that right behind us there's a joyous banquet being offered to us. He said, it, it seems to me, he says, and this is true, that our dreams are not too big for our Lord, they're too small. We are offered infinite joy and we're satisfied with happiness. I would say that, what is she possibly losing? G.K. Chesterton once said that joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian because the fundamental questions of life are answered even if the peripheral questions are not. But for the skeptic, sorrow becomes fundamental because the peripheral questions might have answers but the fundamental ones do not. Why am I here? Why is the world the way it is? How do we get out of here? Those questions are answered for the Christian. So if your friend is content, she left the faith because maybe there's a bad experience. Maybe there's some other stuff. Maybe there's some freedoms she wants to enjoy, or he. I don't know if it's he or she. I'm making assumptions. Um, but there's a freedom this person wants to enjoy, and she feels or he feels that the Bible's restricting those things. The reality is, is that those restrictions don't exist to rob us of our joy. They exist, actually, to augment it. And has, has this person considered those possibilities? It's very, very tough, because there's no intellectual argument. But I'll tell you, that joy is the sustaining power of something. And so these young ladies were talking about what it meant to shine. And the tragedy of it is, is that when they got rid of the God of the Bible, they transplanted him with a secular God who says, you don't have the ability to shine, you have the obligation to shine under your own strength. And every wrinkle and every failure and every misjudgment and every statement you make on Twitter or whatever version of social media happens to be the next popular thing, whatever you do, that will disappoint you. And so your ability to shine because of God's light in you becomes the obligation to shine because of the social pressures that are put on you. And nothing liberates like knowing your heavenly Father loves you no matter what, especially in a world that does not love you no matter what. I hope that helps, Ethan. Thank you for your question. I'm going to talk about it all the time, but does there need to be like a balance of where we're not constantly like, this is the gospel, this is the gospel, this is the gospel, and then also talking about like, we have to care, <laughs> care about other things as well, but um, how do we like balance and not be like too overbearing with our beliefs, especially if we like really yeah. deeply care about their souls and like their eternity, but we don't want to weigh them like yeah. be too much, you know? I get it. What's your name? Alana. 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 Um, uh, uh, I appreciate this question a lot. Um, you ever, this, this, this comedian, I'm gonna tell you something that's funny, but I didn't make it up, so I give credit where it's due. There's a comedian named Michael Jr. And he talks about people who are oversaved. You, do you know people who are oversaved? And this is what Michael Jr. says. If you don't know someone is oversaved, you're oversaved. Um, people like this, this is oversaved. When you're sitting down at the diner and there's a seat next to you and someone says, oh, is this seat saved? And they say, no, but are you saved? You know, that's an oversaved person. <laughs> Uh, someone who says, where are my keys? You need the keys of the kingdom. You know, that kind of person. That's a person who's oversaved. Um, uh, that's off-putting. It's very off-putting. 
And it's a lot of show-off stuff. I'm not judging anybody's heart. I'm just saying that there's a lot of that. Um, <clears throat> I think that the balance to be struck is this, is that whatever you enjoy in life, whatever you care about in life, has a gospel center to it. There's always a gospel center to it. So if you're enjoying a board game, um, I can't imagine why anybody would enjoy a board game, but um, which is terrible. My kids love board games, and they don't get it from me. I'd rather gouge my eye out with a spoon than play Monopoly or any board game. I just, oh, um, yeah, it's awful, but um, they love it. But the fact that they love it, there's something in that. There's, a, there's, there's something gospel-y in that. So here's what I would say, okay, for you as in your own Christian walk, and then that sort of effervesces to the room. You know, there's an aroma that sort of bubbles. You don't need to say a whole lot uh, in order to sort of give off that aroma of Christ in the middle of it. You can thoroughly enjoy an activity, something as trivial as a board game or a puzzle or going to the game or watching the game or um, eating a meal or talking about politics or talking about the latest thing, the, 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 the protest of the day you happen to walk past or whatever it might be. There's always something you can speak about that, it, that, it's, that, 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 that is an enjoyment over something. Let's say it's art. Let's say it's a wonderful movie you've both watched and you can't quite put your finger on why it is you loved it so much, or maybe you're, the person you're talking to hated it. There's always a gospel sort of, I don't want to say hook, so you can you know, worm the gospel in there, but there's always a way that you can Christianly enjoy it and Christianly express something about why it speaks to you. Um, uh, I'll give you an example of something. Uh, there's a movie, uh, it's a pretty rough movie, actually. Um, it's called uh, uh, A Simple Plan. Okay? It was based on a, a book by a guy named Scott Walker, I think is his name. The book is way rougher. I read the book. The book's better than the movie. It's typical. But the movie's pretty good. And this is the story. The story is there's these two brothers who live in um, like North Dakota or um, northern Minnesota, someplace extraordinarily snowy and bleak. Um, and the one brother, the main character, he's very, very bright. And he lives on this farm with his brother who has some mental challenges. And their dad dies. Their mom died as a, uh, no, their dad dies and their mom leaves. So he's in charge of the farm now. He's got to take care of the farm. The older brother does with the younger brother. The younger brother basically just wastes his life. He's drunk all the time with one friend. He just basically wastes his life. Well, one day they're walking through the woods. Snow is as high as their knees. Their dog's out there, you know, doing something and they're with a friend. So it's the two, two brothers and a friend. And the one guy wants to send the dog off on something, so he takes a snowball, packs it deep, and he throws it out for the dog to go run after it. And it hits something metal, clunk, in the middle of the woods. And all of a sudden, the snow falls off a crashed plane. And the plane has a bag in it, a big bag, with $4 million in it, and a dead body. So the plane crashed. But the dead body, not dead because of the plane crash, he's got a bullet hole in his head. So he clearly was murdered. This is not like a bank transfer. You know, this is a drug deal or something gone bad. So the simple plan is the smart brother says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to keep the money in my home. You all know where I live. I'll keep it. This will get snowed over again pretty quickly, and so it'll be covered for the rest of the, rest of the winter. If we hear anybody coming looking for this thing, then we'll know that this is somehow in the news, we need to get the money to the police and be done with it and walk, walk away. But if the thaw happens and no one comes, 
we'll split the money evenly three ways and we'll go our separate ways. We'll never hear from each other again. We'll just go off in our separate ways and we'll just be rich men. Our families will be taken care of. Simple plan. What ends up happening is human sin takes over, is that eventually greed, this guy wants some of his money now and this guy wants some of it now and all this stuff and it ends up in murder, multiple murders. And the guy, the, the brother who's the smart one, who's this good man everybody loves, ends up being this terrible person and it's because of the love of money and the simple plan and the sinful condition. There's nothing Christian about that movie except the depravity of humanity and how all of us, the whole point of that movie is that all of us could easily fall prey to a seemingly simple plan because of our human nature. There's a gospel on that. So you can have a conversation about a movie and say, what was it that stirred me? Or what did I like? What was visually beautiful about it? You can enjoy a sunset. You can enjoy a hike. And not have to mention Jesus very much at all. But just talk about the beauty and the transcendence of things and all that without being corny and cheesy and weird. Um, just enjoy these things. Because here's, the, here's what I'm getting at. Alana, is that when you, you in, in, engage in something you're passionate about or you just enjoy on the side, what you're doing is an act of worship because you feel God's pleasure when you do those things. And if you feel God's pleasure when you do those things, that will just become an effervescent thing about you. 1 Peter 3.15 is interesting because it says, always be prepared to provide a reason, a defense, an apologia for the hope you have to anyone who asks, but do it with gentleness and with respect. The word defense for the hope you have is apologia, which is what apologetics is, and all this, you know, sort of high emo uh, intellectual defenses and all that stuff. But notice what Peter says. The most important part is not the word apologia. The important part is this, is that Peter says, be prepared to provide a reason or a defense for what? Not for whether or not Luke was part of the Bible or whether or not, you know, David was actually king of Israel. For the hope you have. All those things add up to the hope you have. But then the chief part is this. Always be prepared to provide a reason for the hope you have to anyone who asks you. So the fundamental way in which you can actually be an evangelist without being corny and cheesy and weird and overbearing is by living a life so hope-filled that people say, what's with you? And your generation is facing a world where we are in short supply of that kind of hope. So if you live that hope of the light that's in you, people will ask, what's the deal? And you get to tell them. Live that light. Mr. Murray, I just want to say uh, thank you for speaking and for uh, our out of the bat talking about how this is a comfortable environment for people with different viewpoints to come and uh, share uh, just as much as those that agree. Um, Absolutely. I have a question that kind of relates mostly to the Old Testament and some accounts that can be found within. Um, do you think that these stories and some of the accounts that can be found within, such as, let's say, the flood, the Garden of Eden, um, any, any one of these the sort of uh, supernatural events, um, can map onto the world that we have now with our current scientific understanding of how the world works and how the world functions? And I guess sort of uh, more broadly, speaking about the Old Testament, is there sort of a metaphorical aspect to it, or is it that everything in there should be taken as this was a true account? Mm -hmm. What's your name? Jackson. Jeff? Jackson. Je Jackson? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, great question. Well articulated. Thank you. Um, so, yes and no. Um, 
a couple of things. I think that one thing we have to understand is that when we read, so there's a temptation, okay? There's a temptation to take what we have come to believe through science and then map that onto the Bible and then say our interpretation of the Bible had to change because the science is now different. Now we, now we know things now we didn't know before and therefore this book that seems like on its face to be wrong, we have to make it allegorical in order to get out of the situation, right? I did a podcast, by the way, on this. Um, if, uh, if you look at um, All Rise, my podcast is called All Rise, uh, and there's a YouTube thing and all that stuff as well, um, where Neil deGrasse Tyson makes this argument. I think he makes it to Pierce Morgan at some point where he says people actually, the problem is, is that the Bible is not a scientific book, but it makes some statements about the way the world works, and it's not true. And so what people try to do is they try as hard as they can to allegorize the Bible because they're embarrassed by how it's not scientifically backed up. And so we try to like allegorize the Bible to get out of the conundrum we find ourselves in because we've said for the longest time the Bible and science match up and then science comes along and says, nuh-uh. And he's like, oh, well, it didn't really mean that. You know, it's like a bait and switch almost kind of a thing. I have a whole hour thing where I respond to that. Um, but I will not take an hour, uh, but I will be a little shorter on this one. The first thing is this, is to take a hermeneutical principle. So hermeneutics is a fancy word for biblical interpretation. So there are ways in which you interpret the Bible. By the way, these principles of interpreting the Bible, we, use the, we do the same thing in law. When you interpret a contract, you interpret a statute, you find out what happened, you have to do these same principles where you look at the entire context and you look the way word usage happens in different areas and can this word mean the same thing here as it does 15 chapters earlier or 15 books earlier. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, depending on the context. So you have to be very careful with that stuff and I think very, very um, determined and uh, deliberate about using context. Very important. It's the key thing. If you don't actually use context, you're going to make the Bible say whatever you want. Um, so what that means is, is that when you come across something, there will be certain indications, certain indicia of whether something is allegorical or something is literal. And sometimes they're not as clear as we might like. Okay. So, for example, there are plenty of people who think the book of Job actually happened. And there are plenty of people, Bible-believing Christians, who think the book of Job is basically a big allegory. Because while it gives some references to locations, it sort of has these allegorical things to it. There were people who tried to allegorize Jonah, the story of Jonah, and say, well, Jonah is metaphorical. The whole thing's metaphorical because, seriously, a big fish? Come on. Um, until that guy, I don't know if you saw that story, like two years ago, that guy got swallowed by a fish. Um, he got spit out pretty fast, but the whole guy got swallowed by a whole fish, um, and it can happen. Um, and so the idea that God can create a fish so big that he can swallow a man and not die, or maybe even there's some argument that Jonah actually did die in, uh, within, within the, within the um, belly of that fish. Um, it's not, it's not, not implausible. A God who can create everything from nothing can certainly create a big fish. That's not hard. Um, but here's why I think Jonah is not allegory. Jonah is replete with specific historical details, uh, not only in terms of places, like all the cities that are named, but also the time periods that are, that, that, are, that are expressed. And Jonah is referred to in another book of the Bible as an actual historical person. And no one thinks that that book of the Bible wasn't meant to be a historical record. It's clearly, obviously, not an allegory. It's there was a guy named Jonah and blah, blah, blah in this other book of the Bible. He's mentioned like in two sentences, but in the book of Jonah, he has a whole book. So there's reasons to believe, adequate and good reasons to believe that Jonah is not a parable. It's not a fable. It's not an allegory. It's not a symbol. Um, so that's context. 
within the book itself and then outside the book, do we have references to Jonah as an actual person? And the answer is yes. So then we, it's very hard now to argue that Jonah is an allegory. And if you say, well, the, the, the fish part was an allegory. Well, now you're being arbitrary because now you're just picking the fish part because you don't like the fish part because it sounds a little ridiculous. You don't like it. So the rest of it's history, but not that part. Well, that's just arbitrary. Now we're just picking and choosing. You can't do that. And so it's uncomfortable because we're stuck with some things that are hard to believe. But as a friend of mine once posited, you know, you can believe in the virgin birth of Jesus from Mary's womb, or you can believe in the virgin birth of the universe from nothing without an agent by itself. Pick your absurdity. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to pick one of these things. So looking at the context, if you look at the flood, for example, um, in fact, there is a lot of evidence for a global in the sense of localized where all the people live, some kind of a flood event. And it's actually referenced in other cultures as well. So you can take this two ways. You can say, because the Chinese record a flood event, and so do Africans, and so do um, other cultures that are sub, like, sub, uh, like the Indian subcontinent and maybe even up into um, uh, Russia and those areas, ancient cultures record a flood event. Now, someone could say, well, that's a common cataclysmic um, symbol, and so just because they all have them doesn't mean it actually happened. It just means that they all have this common theme. Or it could mean something bad happened, and it was recorded by a lot of people. Um, so you can have that, and you can see that. I think that there is some good evidence to believe that there was probably a flood of some kind, whether it was global, meaning the entire sphere of the earth, or it means where people lived, because they didn't live everywhere back in the time of Noah. They didn't live, there was no, you know, people running around, you know, northern Canada or anything like that. So there's evidence for this. Is there a possibility that some stuff is allegorical? Yeah, but you have to really look at the context to it. Um, uh, so um, I'm trying to think of, a, so it, it comes obvious, for example, when Jesus says things like, I am the door. He doesn't mean he's actually made of wood and hangs on a hinge and has a knob sticking in the middle of his belly button. You know, that's not what he means. But he means he's a door. This is what John, Lennox, John, John Lennox would argue, is that he is a literal door, but he's not literally a door. So you take the Bible in its literary sense. Um, but now we look at science and we say, has science disproven any of these things? I think I would say that there's enough of the Bible, let's take the, gem, the, the, the creation account, okay? So there's various views on this from a biblically uh, sort of um, faithful per perspective. One could say that the Bible account literally has the, earth, the, the, the universe and the earth created in six literal days, 24-hour periods. Another view is that the word yom, which means day in Hebrew, can mean, and it does mean in different parts of the Bible, an unspecified period of time. It could be short, it could be really long. We just don't know. And so that's one way to interpret it as well, and that's perfectly legitimate. There's another view which is called, it basically says that, that uh, Genesis is what's called mytho-history. It's teaching you an actual history, but it's mythologizing it in language. So God created the heavens and the earth. He created human beings specially. He did a lot of these things, but there's a lot of mythology that's true myth in one sense. Um, 
So the, the, the moral idea and the central idea is that God is sovereign over all creation. He's not like Zeus or Artemis or Marduk or any of these other gods that emerge from the ether and they have hard times so they create human beings as slave labor and they have little demigods and all that. No, no, there's only one God and he's the, crea he's the creator and sovereign of all things. So that's the truth of what Genesis is trying to teach. So those are different, and those are just three of the models of the many. Um, I tend towards one in particular. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, uh, but my point is this, is that the, the biblical language speaks of a literal creation out of nothing. And there's no allegorizing that. It speaks of a literal, cre a literal creation of everything out of nothing, which means that everything in this world is contingent. It has to be explained by something else, except for the one thing, which is the uncaused cause of, of everything, which is God. That's clear. <clears throat> but the biblical language leaves enough so that the person who studies nature can look at that and say, this is what the evidence seems to be pointing when I look at nature. The Bible says this. It allows for these equally plausible interpretations of what happens here. Does this contradict any of them? Maybe. Then those might be discarded. Maybe. Maybe not. Does it contradict all of them? The answer is no. It doesn't contradict all of them. In fact, it fits nicely within a few of them. However, if I as a Christian were to say, what do I think of when I think of the way God reveals himself? He reveals himself to us in multiple ways, but two important ways he reveals himself to us is through special revelation, his word, and general revelation, the world. So this book, the book of scripture, and the book of nature should not contradict each other. So, if I read the book of nature a certain way and it contradicts the Bible, there's several possibilities. One, my understanding of the scripture is flawed. Nature is not flawed, neither is the Bible, but my understanding of it is flawed. Two, my understanding of nature could be flawed. I mean, one of the things about science is it's quite provisional. There's a lot of things that we hold provisionally so we don't really prove theories, we just hold them provisionally. Um, and there's plenty of those things. Some things we are pretty solid on and some things we hold very provisionally, we're willing to change. And so it could be that our view right now of science says, says this, but there's enough reason to doubt that you don't have to throw this away. Just because if this and this don't agree, it could mean our interpretation of, of nature is flawed. So either we're looking at this book wrong or this book wrong, but they inherently won't contradict each other if they come from the same place. There's enough good reasons to believe that the book of nature and the book of Revelation actually line up really, really strongly in remarkable ways, remarkable ways. Let me give you an example of something that I think is, um, I think is cool, maybe you won't, but I think it's just the cat's whiskers, man. Um, uh, there's a field in engineering, and if you're studying any kind of engineering, you probably know what I'm talking about, called biomimetics. So biomimetics, is what it sounds like. It's mimicking life. It's engineering that mimics life. So you want to find out how to make something fly? Look to how things fly in nature. How do birds fly? How do bees fly? How do these things work? What's the aerodynamics behind this? What about uh, verse, verse, certain locomotion uh, kind of challenges we have engineering-wise? Look at paramecium and look at the little engine that's inside the flagellum, the base that allows that thing to whip around like that so the little single-celled organism can do what it does. There's a million things like this that engineers will look at in nature and say, oh, we should do it that way. And then they do it that way and it works. AI 
is basically taking a look at trying to figure out how our brains work and then mimicking that. So here's the, here, here's the point, okay? If nature is basically a mindless accident, how is it possible that our finest minds can't do anything unless we mimic it? There's a strong element of design in nature based on the fact that we mimic it all the time because it just works. And we're minds and we can't figure it out. But, but accident did better than us? Here's where the Bible comes in. The book of Job says this, and I think it's in Job chapter 12. But ask the beasts of the air and they will teach you. Sorry, ask the beasts of the field and they will teach you. Or the birds of the air and they will profess learning. Or that which crawls on the ground and you will learn. And ask the fish of the sea and they will teach you. Has not the hand of the Lord made all of this? We're doing biomedics now, and the Bible said you should do that thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. The Bible enjoys the freedom to, to explore. The freedom to explore. It's just remarkable. Can I give one more before we go to the next question? I'm probably keeping you guys super late. I'm sorry about that. I get excited. Um, I, was standing, I was sitting in a, uh, uh, I was, uh, at an open forum, and a friend of mine gave a talk on science and faith, and I joined him for the Q&A, and this guy pops up, and he says, look, my problem with, with, with belief in God is that it's a science stopper. You know, we say, God, you know, God did it, we don't have to explain it. You know, it's the God of the gaps kind of a thing. You know, uh, thunder happens because you know, God throws something down, and that's, I don't need more explanation. I don't know one Christian who thinks like that, by the way. Um, uh, and in fact, the, sci the finest minds in science, uh, in the history of science, were often devout Christian believers who didn't hang up their faith on the, on the peg when they, when they took the lab coat on. They actually brought their faith to the lab. Um, I said, you know, it's interesting you say that, that, that faith is a science stopper, because I look at two things, okay? I look at Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 and 3, but 2 is the important part. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. It's the glory of God to conceal something. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. In other words, God conceals some things so that we can delight in the glory of discovery. It's for us that he conceals some things. Um, I, mean, ask, I mean, I can tell you, when my son learned how to read and he was doing it on his own, I, he was happy. I can tell you, I guarantee you, I was happier than he was. Um, God's delight is that we discover things. But here's what's interesting. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. So for a lot of years, people theorized a couple of things. Einstein and others had theorized that massive gravitational objects will bend light due to their gravity. So we theorized that, and it was theoretically proven and all this stuff, but we hadn't actually had empirical verification of it. We also believed that there were two, star, two stars. If you look at the sun, there's two stars like sitting just beyond, you know, in, in the direction of the sun, sort of kitty corner to it, like in the, in the bottom right corner or something like that of the sun. But we can't see it because the sun is the brightest object in the, in the sky, so when the sun's out, you can't see there's two stars behind it. So what do scientists do? They wait for a perfect solar eclipse. Now, this will bake your noodle as well. We're the only planet that has perfect solar eclipses. We're the only one. Why? Because our moon is exactly 400 times closer to us than our sun, and our moon is exactly 400 times smaller in diameter than our sun, which is why we get perfect solar eclipses. Now, you might think that that's a coincidence, but the only planet that has observable solar eclipses is the only planet that has observers on it? That's interesting all by itself. And by the way, it wasn't always that way. The moon was a different distance and different size. 
centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries ago and millennia ago. And now it's the size, exactly the right size that we need as observers who can make scientific theories empirically verifiable. So, solar eclipse happens. What do they discover? There's those two stars. They, the sun is concealed by the moon, and now we're verified. Those two stars exist. What else? We, we take measurements of the light, and the light, sure enough, bends around the sun. So because the sun was concealed by the moon, we were able to discover scientific fact. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. How do you like that? And it all says we should be discovering these things. So will you, as, as bright young students who are looking into the fields of science or whatever it might be dealing, don't be afraid that what you're going to ex experience or explore is going to somehow undo all that. It's going to fit hand in glove. And if it doesn't seem to fit hand in glove while you're exploring it, think for the possibility that we're understanding this wrong or this wrong. It's a long answer to a short question, but I hope you can appreciate that. I think is, I think is really I think what we're, we're looking at here is that we ought not to be afraid of these things. We don't have to over-allegorize things because we need to get rid of the embarrassment of the contradictions. I think it's, we're okay. We're okay. There's plenty of options available to us on the language, but don't fret too much because either our science is wrong or our interpretation of the Bible is wrong. But I have seen enough to, to get me to have confidence that the Bible's not wrong on this stuff. We'll just get, we'll get a, a proper interpretation uh, over time of one of the two of those things. Hope that helps. That was a great question. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you'd like more information about us, please visit our Instagram page at UGABCM or visit us on our website at UGABCM.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode.